0: Hello, and welcome to another exciting episode of The Greatest Podcast in History. I am Mitch. And I'm Dylan. And today we're going to be talking about hot monks.
1: Uh, Lying monks and lazy bishops. Hit them with the intro. (laughs) my favorite part of the show is listening to that song if i have to be honest gets me pumped every single exactly. time exactly it's the struts uh these times are changing uh, if anybody wants to know it's he's a freddie mercury sound alike uh it's pretty <laughs> weird um rip freddie but uh it's a great song and you should listen to all of it and that new album which is pretty good they didn't pay me to say that
0: <laughs> and it fits perfectly for a history podcast exactly the rest of the song
1: is talking about like hanging out with uh, famous people
0: yeah see we can be cool and, and hip on the music podcast today yes it's very good um, the
1: rest of the album is very cock rocky um, as that song is too but it's good yeah so as we intro our new cold open today um, as we mentioned we're talking about hot monks um, lazy bishops and what was the third thing I mentioned uh, I wasn't paying attention. Uh, great. I think it was lying <laughs> monks, if I remember yeah. correctly. Um, um, so all three. We're going back to the Middle Ages for this one. So a bit of a different switch from the last podcast. Yeah. Um,
0: we've talked a little bit about in the past how kind of like monasteries were the centers of pretty much everything in in uh, medieval Europe. Whether beer making, beer making. Uh, so there's a lot more exciting things uh to about to these these stories of kind of monks and. Uh, priests than you would normally think. Exactly, and just to look at like the way, like the definition of like what truth is,
1: and not to get like really deep on you, but like there is like that people's ideas of what was real and what was fake, and like what history was, have changed a lot in the past. And we'll be talking a little bit about like pre-literate societies, so how like literature and the actual writing of words like changed how life was um, in the pre. From pre-writing, from pre-writing days to post-writing days. Yeah. There's a different word for that somewhere. <laughs> um, oral versus um, literate cultures, I think, if you want to read Walter Ong. Yeah. Um, but don't, because he's pretty boring, <laughs> and he's probably pretty wrong on a lot of stuff.
0: It's, it's a pretty complex book, um, work that he's he's done in, in the past and whatnot. I had uh, a professor who made us read it like three times.
1: Um, I read it half the time.
0: Yeah, his, his book is, Walter Ong's book is called Orality and Literacy, mm-hmm. and, it, and it kind of uh, shaped how a lot of historians have uh, studied and interpreted works of pre-literate cultures. Exactly, and there's cool graffiti on the cover, which yeah. doesn't really
1: make sense because it's not like about how writing looks, but, you know, those
0: are history books for you. Hey, who knows. Uh, so when a lot of people think of monks and, and things like that, they typically have the Monty Python... Mm-hmm. Uh, the
1: Domineo and then smacking themselves yeah. in the head uh,
0: but it wasn't like that no this not at not all necessarily, not necessarily. <laughs> they did chant in Latin a
1: lot uh, there's a great Spotify playlist if you want to check it out just of Monk's uh, Gregorian chants uh, which Gregorian is post what we're talking about it's a little newer um, but they did do like the invention of get a little his- music history here the invention of like polysyllabi, that's probably not how you pronounce it like didn't come until later but Monk's did have to do a lot of it a lot with that, like music was mostly performed in monasteries and in churches at that time, and it was mostly just like drone chanting. Like the way music was written was like you couldn't really read it. It was like everyone just essentially interpreted it how they wanted to interpret it. Um, and, but then, like, and it wasn't until like the Renaissance, the development of like people singing different notes at the same time and people like actually reading the music one way uh, was invented.
0: Yeah. Yeah, because um, I mean, we're talking. We're gonna talk a little bit about how difficult it was um, for kind of literacy, literacy and literature to, to spread. Mm-hmm. Uh, just the written word. It's a whole nother thing for people to write, become have have a formalized system of writing music and sheet exactly. music was yeah. something that's really, if you think about it, it's really complex. Mm-hmm. How do you come up with a universal system that every musician would understand and that kind of the system of writing sheet music that we have today uh, really came around in the renaissance. Exactly, but we're going even earlier than that. Um, the, the first thing that
1: we should talk about is actually something we didn't mention in our intro. So not lion monks, not hot monks, or not lazy ones. <laughs> we're talking about business monks uh, and business kings, uh, the best kind of king, the one who does business. Um, so this is like in the eight hundreds. This is pretty early, eight hundred A.D. There, uh, like a form- formalized systems of writing hadn't really been developed in England yet, but people were still doing like land deeds and like had land titles, and they needed to know where their land was. And so they had to come up with a system for how to remember this. Like, how do you know that your, you know, your farm ends at the tree on the hill or whatever, compared to where does the your neighbor's farm ends? They needed a system, a formalized system for this, so there wouldn't constantly be like petty nobles fighting each other over like inches of land.
0: Yeah, I mean today, these days, you have um, a bunch of fences around your property, and if someone comes on your property, you you come out with your um, wife beater. Uh, stained wife beater sure about um, drinking a bud light with your shotgun and tell them, tell them people to get off your your property Yeah, or if you're not
1: living in the south you can tell them to go to the city um, What's the word I'm looking for? Um, not registrar There's an apartment department in the city of Evanston that I worked for and I should know what it is <laughs> uh, I worked there for a summer awful job But you can just go and literally look at microfiches of where the outlines are and i will give you that down to the detail um, descriptions of where your property ends and where it doesn't, and mm-hmm. you can find it out legally. Yeah. But back in the day, you couldn't do that. You had to find it out with swords and then die of diphtheria. Or other rust- related diseases.:
0: What a time to be alive,
1: what a time to be alive. Jacob and Future wrote that album about uh, 19, 1800s land fights. Uh, <laughs> but I digress. Um, so we, so I guess not we. we didn't make any of these things. Um, so back in the day, in the 800s uh, and earlier too, what they developed was a system of like, essentially they put on a show. Whenever there was land grants being given or land titles being given to nobles from a king, um, they would basically put on a pageant. And they did this so people would remember and be able to tell the story of the time that these land deeds were given over, and that way they would pass uh, throughout, through the community, and they wouldn't be known forever.
0: Yeah. So it's it's interesting because it's a system that's based entirely around witnesses. Exactly. It's a community um, system.
1: Yeah. Not indiv- it's not individual. It's the community has to remember.
0: Yeah. Uh, this is I mean, a, a time when, when honor and your word was a big deal, and but the only other thing that you really had to prove something would be uh, having witnesses. Exactly. Having people, Other people who can vouch for you, mm-hmm. and that would actually linger around for a long time.
1: Exactly, yeah. Stories that were told by individuals and not be able to be counted by other people generally weren't considered like to be really true because if it was just one person... Then, how could you remember one if you don't have other people to help you remember these things mm-hmm. and, and this goes back to Ong a little bit. The way people remember stuff is if they're big and showy. Yeah. You don't remember ordinary things in your day. Mm-hmm. These peasants who like, lived horrible lives, you know like they were farm every day or you know, like huddle in the cold in their huts. But if there's a big show and a big deal and an important person came by, they would remember that because that never really happened.
0: Yeah. Uh, when your day is so miserable and your life is so gray, um, just the tiniest bit of of change can can make all the difference. Exactly. Uh, and this kind of would actually change, or would also develop with the development of literature and how people wrote stories. Uh, if you read anything, um, any stories like Beowulf or some or the, something called the Song of Roland, it's not exactly what we would consider fantastic literature. They it's, repeat themselves
1: constantly.
0: Exactly. It's like. It's awful.
1: Yeah, you, can't, you can barely read it because
0: every other line stanza is
1: saying the same exact thing, yeah. just in a slightly different way.
0: But the thing is that these these stories were originally passed down orally. So exactly. just as you would be able to recount uh, the, the, the day that you were granted your, your land title and other people would be able to recount it because it was such a big show, when people told stories, just made up stories like Beowulf or something like that, yeah, uh, the way they told it was it's such a repetitive manner and it was such over so so over the top that mm-hmm. they really wanted to make it so that you could remember and and that they were able to remember it as they were uh, in their third hour of retelling the story.
1: Exactly, and that's what kind of like these um, land transfers were doing. It would be a big old thing. It'd be pretty much all day. there would be a big feast, and then there'd be the formal like declaration and the formal show of making. Um, the issuing of the, the land deed. And so in the 800s, around this point, they did have writing. Like, they knew how to write, and not everyone did, obviously, and it was pretty select few, but uh, they didn't really trust it. They, writing wasn't considered something that, like, it, it, you couldn't, like, make a legal case on it. It was starting to become that way, but it's still at this point, it was mostly, like, people had to witness it. People had to be there, watch, like, the whole, and the stories would be told about it. So they would hand over these formal deeds, you know, signed with a ribbon, like done with the royal seal. like it was it wasn't just a piece of paper. it was a whole like mess. It was basically like a birthday invitation, but like a thousand times more gaudy. Mm-hmm. But then, to make it interesting, they would bring out their swords. And they would some it was generally a symbol. So they would hand over like a giant handmade sword specifically just for this time. The sword might have some sort of like symbolic thing on it, like a hair or whatever, if there's lots of rabbits that lived in the place, or things like that. And then, and they would, that would be the big, that would actually be, not the paper, but like this sword or this certain object would be the thing that actually gave you like the land grant. Like, so if someone's like, hey, like someone wanted to come steal your land, you'd have to take out the sword and show them and be like, no, like, haven't you heard the story? Like 300 years ago, my father was given this sword by King so-and-so, and I own this land because of this sword. Mm-hmm. And people would be able to back them up, like they were like, ah, yes, I remember my grand, great, great grandfather telling me about the day that this sword was given, you know, to Sir what fuck, whatever his face, (laughs) and he would have this land in perpetuity. And they wouldn't like it wouldn't just be like here is like they wouldn't kneel down and be like here is this sword, my liege, and like bend on one knee. Like they would do jokes. Like there's a story of uh, a king giving some land. a French guy, he had come over and he was like, they had conquered the Normans, the Normans, sorry, conquered in England. And he was like fake stabbing the guy. And it's like this big old story. Like he was like fake pretending to kill him when he gave this land. And er that made everybody laugh and people remembered it because of that. So they weren't always like these really like solemn, like business deals. Like there was jokes and they were making fun of each other and it was like a whole celebration
0: almost. Mm -hmm. Um, But there are also lots of times that there's always like a military Tinge to a lot of this. That's mm-hmm. um, the large. swords. Yeah, exactly. It's it's in one sense it's because the people who had these swords were of the military class, the knight knight class mm-hmm. and whatnot. Um, but also, I wasn't there. There's another story of someone who just like, like stabbed their dagger on the table or something at, yeah. at, at this at this big sh- making a big show of you know I'm stabbing my dagger into the table. Uh, yeah, it was like it was like a it
1: was a table or a piece of wood or something that had like been on that land and was like super representative. And so he was like literally marking his claim mm-hmm. on that piece of wood, which then made excuse me made him the ruler of that land. Yeah, so it was all very symbolic. Yeah, at the
0: time. And this would also be around the same time you see the development of as you kind of mentioned seals, mm-hmm. uh, wax seals. Often the the noblemen would have a ring with kind of a a specific. Um, image on it that was uh, ascribed to him and his family exactly. and his house. Very and, intricate yes. designs that can easily copied. By, by pressing that into hot wax onto a letter or onto a document, that would, in a sense, be their signature. Because even then, the the nobleman might not be literate. He might not know how to exactly. read and write. A lot, oftentimes, these people would have, thing, would have these documents and letters read to them.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, um, we think generally of like if you think of like early literacy most people
1: think of it'd be the nobles and the royals who were literate mm-hmm. and some of them were but mostly it was actually like a little lower class like scribes and intellectuals who yeah. were the ones who could read and write not the actual upper class
0: which i mean there's kind of there's some a little bit of a modern relation to that is if, if you're reading some if there's some big legal document yeah. uh, you don't want to read it yourself no. you're not you're not literate mm-hmm. in in that kind of legal language you would have have a lawyer look at it and read it exactly. and then explain it to you so it's kind of similar you still there's still traces to that um, and kind of when we're tossing around like the term literate it doesn't just mean uh, being able to to read and write it's being able to understand and comprehend and kind of engage in this culture
1: mm-hmm. uh, literate
0: society is is goes beyond just reading and writing exactly
1: that. and I just would go back to going back to sealing wax um, this is, it's pretty insane how much, like, popular this got. If you go up, they have, we have records, uh, historians have records of how much wax was used in English courts in the 1200s. And it's insane how much wax they went through with these seals and just how important they were. They got attached to everything. But if you look at these records, you can see from, like, in one a one-year period from 1229 to 1230, the court alone, just the royal court, this is, so this isn't counting like other records used by other nobles, the court used 242 pounds of wax. That's so much wax. That's insane. It maybe took like an, I can't, not even less than an eighth of a pound, like less than an eighth of an ounce to make one of these seals. And they went through 242.5 pounds of wax alone in one year. That's how many letters they were saying. And if you move it ahead to like just 30 years later, like 1257, they were using up to five, they They're using up to, in 1255, they used 700 pounds of wax in one year. That's so much wax. Like, that, yeah. <laughs> it's an insane amount of, like, seals that were being passed around through the region because they were so important and they were considered, like, these, they were, like, trusted as being actual, like, this is what proved that it was from this person. Not, not their writing, not, like, their signature, their handwriting, whatever was said, but because of these seals. Mm -hmm. and so so moving forward a little bit in time jumping in time uh, writing had become more formalized more trusted uh, but it still wasn't fully trusted yet so as we mentioned like the 800s when they're doing land deeds they had to have a show it had to be a big old thing but later the court started using they started keeping records keeping track of documents Mm -hmm. and this became a problem for some monks this is the lion monks we're talking about because a lot of times, monks, you know, monks, like, they were the big, they used the land, they cultivated, they made a lot of money. That's how they, um, you know, fed themselves and sold things, and they were able to build new monuments and churches and everything. Mm-hmm. was from their land. And the court wanted to keep track of where this land was coming from. And sometimes monks got into disagreements with each other
0: over who owned the land. Yeah. And um, since they were um, medieval Europe's experts in writing... Mm-hmm. Uh, they were also. They also had the most experience in um, in copying kind of scripture because th- they were by far the most literate people. Exactly. Because um, the entire way that you would uh, pass on preserve books and documents was by rewriting because there wasn't a printing press. Uh, they had the most experience looking at analyzing formal documents Mm -hmm. such as land grants and wills and whatnot. And they would copy them for their own records and for public records. And they, you know, sometimes had the desire to kind of change them a little bit. Exactly. Just nudge them in their favor or (laughs) someone else's favor. If they were running
1: into some other monks and, you know, they were asked for documents because people were now starting to trust documents. They weren't just relying on people's words or stories. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so these monks... They might, you know, maybe forge a document or two yeah. to prove that they had had this land for centuries and centuries. Yeah. And since at this point no one really considered forgeries to be a problem, no, um, they generally got away with
0: it. Yeah, and there is there is another kind of way that that you can interpret kind of the forging of documents. Of course, you for legal documents and whatnot it's never, not a good thing to do uh, but the way that a lot of the monks saw it at least when they were copying scripture or copying just books or other letters and kind of changing them they were they saw them uh, themselves as kind of making it mo- as modernizing the documents exactly and kind of make revamping them for new modern age exactly they were they thought they were considered to be telling the true story they you know they
1: considered like this land their God-given right. And so mm-hmm. why why should these documents not tell what they saw as the truth? They saw they had no moral compunctions against like changing these documents, against committing forgery. And often the way they would, you know, miraculously would always they would miraculously find these documents. <laughs> yeah. And so they would be like, "Oh, we were searching in our like we had a, a brother Abbott, was searching and like, cleaning the walls and he discovered this hidden cache of documents." We hadn't seen before. He mm-hmm. was just shown a vision by God of where to knock down a wall. And he discovered 15 new documents, each of them saying that we own this land for the last 400 years and were given it to him by a king. Yeah. But in the search, they all, all the documents dissolved because they were so <laughs> old, but only after he read them. And so that's when so they telling yeah. stories. Yeah. <laughs> they completely just make up these fictions and so they get land.
0: Yeah, it's the same thing as uh, with kind of what saints relics. Uh, the same way that, you know, Brother Michael would be in the, in the storehouse brewing the, a new fine ale. Uh, and he comes across the bones of St. Peter. Um, Which just
1: happened to be, you know, <laughs> brewing
0: somewhere. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. He just digs it up. And all of a sudden, that monastery has, has a relic uh, that belonged to a saint or, or another religious figure and all of a sudden you have tourists and pilgrims coming to that monastery, spending their money there, and that's actually uh, one of the main ways that a lot of uh, monasteries made all their money.
1: Exactly. And this was, yeah, and so this was at a time that like, documents, people trusting documents, was just developing, and they were already twisting those to their gains. And some noblemen did this too. This wasn't just for monks, but they mm-hmm. would give themselves land grants or titles that they hadn't had before by being able to produce these documents that said they had them and since it was they were able to take advantage of this new technology and the new acceptance of legal documents as being proof positive of something that actually happened they were able to use that for their own gain which hadn't been the case before courts started accepting these documents in court usually previously you weren't able like if you had a document saying something it generally was like considered not really evidence it was like seen as like lesser evidence, like just hearsay or whatever. You actually had someone to you usually needed someone to like orally back you up yeah. and tell like a court that this actually happened. You can just produce a piece of paper. But now paper started to be to be produced.
0: Yeah, and this, as lots, um, some historians have argued uh, that we've kind of read in preparation for this, uh, this was kind of one of the beginnings of, or this is what allowed for bureaucracy. Mm-hmm. Um, just because you have preserved documents uh, or ones that are being manually kept up with. Uh, you're able to have courts now accepting these documents and records and keeping their own records of what happened um, as writing became more and more commonplace exactly. and the accepting of these documents. So you have to have this mental shift mm-hmm. where all of a sudden writing and documents are accepted as, as facts and true um, for things like bureaucracy to, to function. Exactly.
1: And a side note, fun fact, um when people sign, if they sign their name with an X, generally, if you do that today, you're generally considered illiterate. But back in the day, that would came about because people would draw the sign of the cross, yeah. and you, it was considered impossible to lie while you were drawing the cross, which is why X was such a common signature used back in the day. Yeah. And that's transformed now to something completely different than what it was. It was if you signed your name with an X in a legal document in like 1100 BC, that was considered proof positive that you were not lying, mm-hmm. because God himself would could not. Herself, God
0: herself, would not allow you to lie while you were signing your name with the sign of the cross. Um, Luckily, the flying spaghetti monster um, (laughs) will allow you to lie. Exactly. Get away with (laughs) it. You draw a sign with a bowl of spaghetti. Um, But no, you also have, like, the law of documents still today uh, has an X and then a dot line that you you sign by the dot line at the X, by the X. That X Um, comes from the cross. Yeah. Um, FedEx comes from... From that
1: no, it doesn't. Don't listen, Mitch. We never
0: get anything wrong on this. No, I you, wish
1: that came from the X, that'd be cool. Yeah,
0: but you still, I mean, you still um, have to swear on the Bible when you go to exactly. court or whatever, yep. you put your hand on it and whatnot. Um, so, I mean, symbolism like that, you can still see how important that is because that's mm-hmm. something that when you're in a courtroom, you're being witnessed as putting your hand on the Bible. Exactly, and it's believed that in front of these witnesses and in front of, of God that you. You know, are you so so afraid of lying that you won't... Exactly.
1: All right. So now we're going to make a bit of what might seem like a weird lateral shift. And we're going to talk about hot monks.
0: Sexy monks.
1: Ooh, these bodies were banging. Yeah. Let me tell you. These... So this seems like we're being uh, just a random switch from, you know, lying on documents to talking about hot-ass monks. But it's actually pretty connected. Yeah. Uh, So... As we were mentioned a little bit before, like monks and the clergy, they were huge. They were like basically, they were the celebrities of their time. Everyone knew who the local monk was. If you had a local bishop or a local archbishop, you knew who he was. He was immensely powerful. They were a big deal. So community life, religious life, political life, mm-hmm. these guys were very strong in their day. And they had to, they interacted with everybody because of that. Mm-hmm. But as we talked about, literacy was just developing at this time. And there's a lot of theories going around that because literacy was still developing, and most people who are listening to these monks and these bishops talk, they couldn't. I mean, this is in the theory. They, we know that they couldn't read it and they couldn't write. Mm-hmm. They were still in these what's considered like an, an oral culture mindset. They like they were still essentially storytelling. Yeah. And because of this, they wanted their storytellers to be interesting.
0: Yeah. You had to be um, someone that people would enjoy listening to and looking exactly. at. Yeah, they were these weren't people
1: who were listening to podcasts
0: to go to church. <laughs> they weren't
1: reading sermons. They were listening to these people speak. Yeah. Essentially, at this point, monks and bishops had to be actors almost. They had to personify what they were doing. Uh, their formalized emotions for different things, but they also had to be attractive. They didn't <laughs> It was also considered like a godly thing. Like if you were attractive, you had been blessed by God and were therefore a better person, essentially. Mm-hmm. They what they considered odd, If your inside was good, that would reflect upon your outside.
0: Exactly, Uh, which is why a lot of times, like um, you know, being having good manners and walking gracefully and properly and upright uh, was a sign that you were holy and that Mm. you were you were divine. Um, So things like if you had a limp. Or if you had some sort of facial deformity,
1: that was considered coming from something evil inside of you, yeah, or your parents, yeah.
0: And throughout the Middle Ages, actually, this kind of would would switch mm-hmm. uh, back and forth. But what I mean by that is, like, um, you know, early on they they believed that it started with within. If you were good, then that would manif- that would transform itself and manifest itself in your outside appearance. Uh, later on, some uh, monks and, and scholars would say, no, if you learn how to be good if you learn manners and you learn how to speak charismatically then that will then that will reflect on your inner soul Mm -hmm. and so for a long for many of the centuries up the middle ages and and beyond it kind of flipped back and forth depending on what academic or scholastic or monastic uh, following you're a part of Mm -hmm. so like if you mumbled
1: or something you might it might be considered uh, like you had some you had committed a sin you had not absolved yet but if you're able to, you know, speak with clear diction and pronunciate and enunciate correctly, then you are perfectly. You are basically an angel on earth. Wow, oh, that's fantastic. Oh, thank you. Yeah. I've been taking diction classes. <laughs> but there's some. Speaking of these hot, hot monks, there's some great stories, um, just about like people getting like chased off because they were ugly or like because they were so hot that they like had to evade everybody. There's a story that, and this is taken from the Envy of Angels by Stephen Jagger, where he tells the story of this William of Malmesbury, or sorry, William of Malmesbury is telling the story of this bishop who was trying to be murdered, like these assailants were trying to murder him. But he was so beautiful that he just turned to look at them, and they dropped their knives and they fled because they couldn't kill someone so beautiful.
0: Basically, it was, he did blue steel exactly. like Zoolander.
1: Yeah, and they tell and the the story is told that there wasn't a divine interference with the story. It's not a miraculous thing. The guy was just so like hot that he like dropped. There was no like no angel came down and made him more beautiful. He was just naturally that good looking, and these people like. Couldn't kill something so beautiful.
0: Yeah, and although the monks were expert brewers, and these weren't beer goggles, these people were were actually very handsome.
1: Believe it. And there's there's other stories of um, where like bishops who maybe wanted to get kicked out, they were called ugly, and that was a huge. They were considered unworthy for this. Like that was a big deal if you were like considered ugly or too short. Like a lot of bishops were very tall for their time Mm -hmm. because that was considered a good. Like you couldn't be a good bishop if you were short and squat. Uh, there's, like the, the Bishop Gunther of Bamberg had such, to quote, elegance of form and overall build of the body that like when he was in on a crusade in Jerusalem, like apparently, supposedly crowds would just follow him because he was so beautiful <laughs> and they would l- want to listen to his speeches. Yeah. So these guys were, they were the celebrities of their day. Yeah. Like TMZ, like 1100s, like love these guys. <laughs> it was like follow them around. It was, and they're like all the, like all bishops essentially were Brad Pitt, like at the time.
0: Yeah. Um, And these were, um, as kind of Walter Ong, the the man who we mentioned before, would kind of argue this was a sign of a very oral-based culture. Um, He, Ong Ong kind of says that oral cultures tend to form very close-knit groups Mm. uh, that followed particular leaders that were based on their charisma um, and the kind of their personality and and whatnot. And so having people follow, literally follow these monks and, and bishops and stuff because they were so... Enamored with them, exactly. That's that's a sign of kind of an oral culture. Yeah.
1: But we literate people know better. We know that ugly people can like still be smart too. I yeah. guess. it's just like the one development we have.
0: <laughs> I mean, think about it. Unless you, if you're reading a book, yeah. unless you, unless there's a picture of the author yeah. on the back. Oh, or I, I never look at the pictures.
1: Up. Every author is like pretty ugly. Like Stephen <laughs> King is a monster. He looks so bad. RIP. He, he's not dead. Um, Stephen King's great. Love you, guy. But yeah, like yeah. you like you don't you don't picture the author when you're reading Harry Potter or yeah. if you're reading another famous book that is good. Like you don't think <laughs> of like you don't think of Williams, Williams, like what is his name William Carlos Williams when you're reading? Uh, did he write the plum poem or is that somebody else? I have no idea. <laughs> All right, um, <laughs> never sure. mind. When you like, when you're reading, you don't think of the author. You think of like you maybe draw a mental image of your of the characters in your head or like you try to imagine what you are, but. People argue that back in the day that wasn't really the case. You more you were looking at someone. You were like physically accessing the person who was telling the story. And so you wanted them to be beautiful. They were essentially an avatar for the character of the story.
0: Yeah. Um, and
1: because your life is so bad, you only want to look at hot people. You amen. don't have to look at somebody. You don't have to go to church for like five, four hours or however long the service was and have to look at some but ugly dude up front. Yeah. You don't look at a hot guy, you know.
0: That's yeah. just what it is. And you go back to your little farmstead um, um, and you, you know, you look at your wife, and you're like, ugh! you're like, ugh! ugh, no. Exactly. But then you go to church, and you look at you're that like, hot dude in hot front, and you're like, this is great. I yeah. love God. <laughs> and, but if it's
1: funny because now, of course, standards of beauty have changed, and everything is relative. Um, but if you go back, all those monks are so ugly. Like, you can look at, like, paintings and drawings of them, yeah. and they all look hideous.
0: Yeah. It's great. But also, it kind of makes sense, because a lot of the reason that um, even, like, the churches were so beautifully exactly. constructed yeah. inside, yeah. Um, on one hand, it was to make you in awe of, mm-hmm. of the power of the church and the power of God and, and whatnot. But on the other hand, it was to give you something to look at. And you, exactly. And you see shiny gold print everywhere that's beautiful. That's really nice mm-hmm. to look at and pleasant to look at. And that's how it's Italy's economy now is essentially people going to old churches. Yeah,
1: that and you know bad beer. I thought it was pretty good, but Italian beer is Peroni is <laughs> disgusting. It's like automatically
0: skunked in the bottle.
1: It's <laughs> gross.
0: But some people would still want to you know have a attractive person person to look at.
1: too. Exactly. So those those are the hot monks of yore. Yeah, uh, you know, Playboy eleven November eleven twenty. It's the Bishop of Malmesbury. Yeah. Great cover. F- cover? No. What's the what's the middle part? Co- what? Like the middle, middle part, part of Playboy, like the fold out? That's like oh, a thing. Centerfold. Centerfold, thank you. Yeah. Also a great song by Jay
0: Giles. <laughs> yeah. It's a good song. Um no, but these I this wasn't just you know, attending church and listening to a sermon, this also related itself into the centers of, of academia of the time, which were the cathedral schools. Uh-huh. Uh, schools that were sponsored and hosted in the cathedrals of, of the area. Um, the I mean you had the following, the congregation of people who would listen to the sermons, but also students would be attracted exactly. to uh, certain certain bishops and, and monks mm-hmm to to learn from them because they were had this kind of cult of personality. Exactly. As kind of Jaeger argues in his in his book, he calls it. Um, and this kind of this sprung up a very devout loyalty to certain certain teachers that would go exactly. down in history as as some of you know the best educators of the of the Middle Ages.
1: Yeah, I mean they were like you could trace like their their lineages essentially. They would be like so-and-so trained so-and-so who trained so-and-so. And like they made this cathedral school in like the city of Nice or whatever, like the best school in France for a very long time. Yeah. It was pretty funny. There's like always these competing, it was essentially like early baseball. Like they were like these <laughs> like city teams and they had rivals re- with each other. Like the city of Worms was essentially destroyed because they like wrote this letter. And this letter, like this letter, was circulated around, and they got made so much fun of for writing this letter that, like, the prestige of their school went down so fast and so quickly that, like, the the economy collapsed a little in worms, and like, essentially, like, their intellectual like schools were just destroyed because they were seen like because they got so destroyed by this letter they wrote.
0: Yeah, um, and so uh, yeah, as as argues too, this the kind of beautiful personality as if you're an educator, it, it manifests itself in, its, in your students. Mm-hmm. So it, it's something that's able to be remade and kind of spread through through kind of the cathedral schools. Um, and educators were kind of part of a system in which, as quotes to quote Jaeger, oh. um, we're, we're getting very fancy oh. here, uh, he himself and not books and texts is the lesson. Exactly.
1: So yeah, it wasn't about like reading or writing. It was just about like copying your teacher, essentially. It was like doing an impersonation of your teacher.
0: Yeah. And a lot of this, um, some people kind of look at this this, this kind of ac- academic system that sprung up around the cathedral schools at this time as being kind of less mm-hmm. uh, academic than than later uh, renditions Be- of... Because schools. it wasn't written down. Yeah. But uh, as we've kind of discussed, they, they, did ri- they did write still. Exactly. It just, just wasn't kind the of focus. Yeah. Exactly. Um, It was more on learning um, about how to be a good person and manners um, and things like that, rather than just copying manuscripts of the Bible and and studying scripture word for word. Yeah.
1: So the next time you know your dumb teacher tells you why aren't you doing better? Why don't you write more? Just be like, I'm becoming a better person and being more holy, and that'll shut them up. There we go. Ugh, these teachers these days don't know what they're doing. (laughs) So now we'll switch to something, to the la- our lazy, lazy bishops. Uh, so these guys are also hot, and like all hot people, they're super lazy Inspect expect everything to be given to them on a silver plaque, <sighs> which honestly it was. Like, these guys were so rich, it's like obscene. They had so much money. Uh, and because they had all this money, they didn't want to preach, which no. was essentially like their only job, <laughs> like, in the, in, like, the church like, structure, like, they're supposed to, and they're supposed to do it once a year. Like they had to preach once a year, but they didn't even want to do yeah. that. And so they farmed it out to like these independent <laughs> preachers who would go around the cities of France and England, uh, preaching uh, for money. And they were just like these guys were like these independent preachers were just as much celebrities as like the as the bishops themselves. You have all these stories of these famous uh, preachers going around and telling these stories. Like cities would hire them out to do like the Lenten. Uh, cycle, or like the an Easter, and they got a fair amount of money for doing this. Yeah. But there are also a lot of rules on what they could say, and how they couldn't, like like we were talking about with the schooling, it was mostly about how you could talk, and what you could talk about, and like mm-hmm. how you did the spectacle and the presentation of the thing. Yeah. Because at this point, most of these people listening to speeches still can't read and write. So this ties us back into the land deeds where it's still almost just as much about the spectacle as what you're actually saying.
0: Exactly. Um, and it's actually kind of interesting because this became such a big thing and popular uh, attraction that a lot of uh, people started doing it. And even though it was very much about you know, presentation and everything like that, uh, they actually started writing manuals for mm-hmm. to help other preachers figure out, exactly. okay, what's the best time? Uh, how long should my sermon go? What should I be talking about? There's
1: like a lot of arguments about how long sermons should be. Yeah,
0: and so, some of them say, it says, you know, don't go over this amount of time because uh, the men will just fall asleep and the women will pee themselves because yep. they can't get up and go to the bathroom. That's I. Mean, it says. Yeah. Like they will, you know, go to the bathroom because they can't. There's a yeah, There's a
1: traveling preacher who would literally talk for only an hour and he would stop, if it was, went over an hour, he would stop in the middle of what he was saying and just leave and get down. <laughs> because he thought, like, no, you cannot go over an hour. There's n- nothing can mo- more can be said in an hour. Yeah. And there are some that, you know, spoke for four or five hours. Yeah. And you weren't supposed to get up and leave at, during this time. You were supposed to, like, because this was church. You know? yeah. couldn't interrupt a preacher.
0: And they say, I mean, if you think that's bad, I mean, what our, they say that our modern attention spans are, like, three seconds or something. <laughs> <I don't know. laughs> three seconds. <laughs> I mean, I've been on my
1: phone like five times during this, so I get it. <laughs> but yeah, I can't, like, and they were usually outside because the churches uh, couldn't really fit all these people. Because um, these were such huge feasts. So everyone from, like, from the countryside would come in for these things, like the Easter services. And even from other towns over, like, if the town couldn't afford a traveling preacher, people would come from that town to come in and watch. And so they were all outside. And mm-hmm. so and it's sometimes been pretty hot. And so you're just sitting out on these benches with no backs, listening to this guy drone on for five hours. They had to be entertaining. They had to be interesting. Yeah. And it's, there's, a lot of like, there's a lot of drama uh, that went into these things because a lot of local places had monks. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them had multiple orders of monks. And each order wanted to be represented at the, like the high feast days. Like Easter, Christmas, those kind of things. And so there was a lot of like backfighting and backstabbing and infighting over who would get to preach on what days and for what things. Yeah. Or if they would you know buy one of these um, traveling preachers to so they wouldn't have to deal with any of the drama from these monks. Yeah, it was a, oh, it was a whole thing.
0: And <laughs> it's actually kind of interesting because some of these this drama with the different orders and different uh, sects kind of manifested itself because of this development, simultaneous development of literacy. Uh, With, as kind of Walter Ong argues and some other historians say, um, as you are able to kind of write your ideas down and keep records and stuff, it allows for more complex ideas to to begin to form. Mm -hmm. And then you have people who are adhering to the things that are written down in these documents, whereas other people are changing them to fit a new modern agenda, like the monks that were forging things before. So you have a kind of a different new complexity and everything like that. So it's kind of manif- you can see how the development of literacy directly relates to even things like traveling preachers and lazy exactly. yeah. monks and stuff. Yeah.
1: Eventually, the like the Pope and the church itself had to crack down on these bishops and start making them do their actual speeches, and the like the traveling preachers like like um, not faded away a little much, a little bit. Because like it's insane to think that they didn't want to do like one their one job once a year to preach to some people, yeah. but these guys they, cause some bishops most of them could right? but some of them uh, couldn't because you didn't technically at this point like lay people could be became could become bishops if you were powerful enough um, it didn't always happen but some did and some just like were there for the money they didn't really mm-hmm. they just wanted the money and the power and the prestige they weren't necessarily like super religious. And so, when super religious people got hired, there was sometimes a pushback, because they would try to change things too much, and you know make it, people actually follow all the rules and be like yeah. aesthetic monks. When they, a lot of people didn't want that to happen at the time.
0: Yeah. Uh, another kind of interesting wasn't there there cases where, you know, maybe a, a preacher was so popular that if he got in trouble with the law, that the citizens of where town he was visiting would like pay his bail. Yep itself exactly. yeah
1: help out. sometimes cities would find preachers if they thought their preaching was too like intense or would like was too like stirring and would cause like the citizens to like riot or whatever or like mm-hmm. do something bad. but because there were such cults of personality that these citizens would back them and generally they would the preachers wouldn't get in trouble at all yeah. because they had like this power over their listeners and their followers mm-hmm. because of what people believed in at the time and because they were still in this like, Pre-literate society, essentially.
0: Man, I would hate to live in a time where celebrities yeah. and people with power Ugh. could get off with yeah, breaking no. the law. Yeah, because they're
1: popular. It never happens here. Wow. OJ. <laughs> I'm, I'm not. I'm just gonna. I'm not gonna say anything else after that. Uh, yeah. Dead silence on that. <laughs>
0: no. But he did it. Yeah. yeah is there anything else?
1: I'm good on my end. The, yeah. Uh, yeah. It just. Yeah, so I mean, like, people's, like, ideas of just, like, the switch from oral literate culture was, like, such a big switch in humanity and with how people, like, live their lives, essentially. It was mm-hmm. also a super long switch. Yeah. Like, the idea of a fully literate society. Like, there's still people, there's still, like, groups of people in the world today who are still considered, like, you know, preliterate. Yeah. And we want to make sure not to put, like, some a negative thing on it. Um, there's interesting... I forget what book it was, but one of the author makes the argument in his um, introduction that uh, standardized schooling has create, has made, like, um, made World War II possible, essentially. Like, made the killing, like, the mass killings of people, like, possible. Mm-hmm. So I don't want to put it like a pre-literate, like, post-literate, like, there shouldn't be a negative connotation anywhere in there. It's just, like, what it actually is.
0: Yeah, and I think what we're really just trying to, to show is that this kind of transition and the idea of what progress is is a lot more complicated and complex than people typically exactly. um, people typically think of. I mean, just as the the standard image of medieval monks is the Monty Python image mm-hmm. that we said earlier, it was a lot more, they did a lot more things and they exactly. were a lot more complicated than, than we typically think. We we'll yeah. take that for granted um, because of hindsight and kind of... Yeah modern manipulation.
1: And if there's one thing you take away from this podcast is that everyone in the middle ages wanted to have sex with their with their monks. Amen. Amen. We're going to do the outro now. <laughs>